Now, uh, John's letter and letters, and our overriding focus has been um, trying to discover how God has been at work and how God is at work and how God will be at work, and for us to not only learn that, but to be joining him in that process. Um, before I read the scriptures, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, <clears throat> excuse me, for your word, for those uh, who have preserved it throughout the centuries, for those who have translated it in our time, uh, that we might have easier access to it. But Lord, words on a page without your spirit enlightening us will still leave us in spiritual darkness. So we pray for the ministry of your spirit, that he might enlighten us, that he might open our minds and hearts to see truth, and that he would so work in us that we might respond in ways that certainly please you and that honour the Lord Jesus. We pray and ask in his name. Amen. <clears throat> John says in 1 John chapter 4, we're going to start reading I think from verse 17 in just a moment, but verse 15 says... <clears throat> If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, now it's my particular theological perspective that whenever the New Testament talks about Son of God, we are to understand and we are being fully correct and perhaps even more accurate in English to actually reverse the words. If anyone acknowledge Jesus is God the Son, because that's what the phrase means, Son of God. But in English, and particularly for some cults, when you talk about Jesus as the Son of God, it sounds like he is removed from, he's next generation, he's a step down from God. That's not what the phrase means. The phrase can only be understood in the New Testament to mean that if he is the Son of God, then he's equal to God, and therefore he is God, and so he is God the Son make sense? It doesn't, all right, so I'll just move on anyway. If anyone acknowledge that Jesus is Son of God, God the Son, then God lives in him and that person lives in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Verse 17, which is where we're picking it up <clears throat> this morning. That's where we got to last week. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, complete, mature love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, not made complete in love. We love because he first loved us. <clears throat> and now for the seventh time, John says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet that person hates their brother or sister, then that person is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love God his brother and sister. Into chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father 
loves this child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son. That's where we're going to, I think, get to this morning. But the passage will go on and we'll pick this up next week to identify who Jesus is, that he is the one who came by water and blood at his baptism and at the cross. He did not come by baptism, by water only, but water and blood, by the public declaration at his baptism and by his death on the cross. And it's also the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood, and these three are in agreement. In John chapter 4, in the end of it, <clears throat> the paragraph primarily revolves around, because of our relationship with Jesus and that we are now adopted into God's forever family, the outworking of that is that we have a love for God and we therefore have a confidence in our relationship with God. <clears throat> John says, verse 17, um, in this way love is made complete among us so that we can have confidence on the day of judgment confidence on the day of judgment there is a day of judgment that is coming john certainly is assuming and is referring to and that we as god's people in fact all people will be called before him to give an account but there is a difference <clears throat> And I'm just going to remind you of the difference, and maybe for some of you this could be new information, but I think for the vast majority of us this is, yep, I know that. Um, but John wants, is certainly, the passage is reminding us of these truths. That in John's mind and in his letters and in his writings, the world, humankind divides into two parts, not equal parts in terms of numbers. There's a smaller group of believers, and there is a much larger group of unbelievers. These are two distinct groups. There is no grey matter and there's no bridge in between, they are separated. These ones are the believers who follow and acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, that He is God the Son, that there is a Trinity um, and that they are forgiven only through Him. He is Saviour and Lord, those are in that family. Everybody else who doesn't acknowledge that is in that family regardless of what they believe, regardless of whether they go to church, regardless of whether they're religious, regardless of whatever it is they say they believe, if they do not believe and sincerely, deeply acknowledging these truths, they're not part of this family. Now, everybody will be judged, the Bible clearly says, but it's this group, the people who are not in the family of God, who will appear before a great white throne judgment, where books will be opened and they will be called to an account. This group, those in God's family, will not be called before the great white throne judgment. Their judgment has already happened in the past. Our judgment happened at Calvary, at the cross. We have been set free from sin. The penalty for our sin has already been dealt with. Therefore, there is no punishment awaiting us. And because there is no punishment awaiting us, 
Therefore, we can have confidence before him on the day of judgment. There is still a day of judgment and there is still an accounting that we as believers will be called to give, but not for our sin, been paid for, dealt with. It will be a formal, public and final judgment. The Lord Jesus is the judge, we know this, and we won't be judged for our sin. But it does say, 2 Corinthians 5.10 does say, that we'll appear before him, have to give an account, and receive in the body for things done, whether good or evil. I wonder what that means. There's going to be some sort of recompense. Some accounting. 1 Corinthians 3, I think verse 15, talks about how we'll be judged for our works, and if we've served God with the best that we've got, then it'll be tested by fire, and... Some will stand the fire and they'll receive a reward. Other works will be tested by fire and they'll be burnt up. It says, they will suffer loss. What does that mean? Loss of reward? Probably. They themselves will be saved, but as through the fire. That's the family of God we're talking about there. So we can have confidence before Him that it's, we're not talking about punishment. Penalty has been paid in full, but there is nonetheless an accounting, a reporting, uh, a giving and a, a report on what we have done. What will we be examined for? You ever considered that question? This man, H.L. Wilmington, who's a remarkable, was, I'm not sure if he's still alive, a remarkable Bible scholar, who has this, don't know, incredible ability to gather lists of things and put them together and one of the questions he asks what will be tested at the judgment seat of Christ and he says 12 areas I'll just read them out to you I don't want you to write them down you want a copy I'll you can uh, give me 20 bucks I'll give you a copy <clears throat> oh, I'll give an account for that um, or make it 10 um, 12 things how we treat other believers number one how we treat other believers and he has references for this Number two, how we exercise our authority over others. That's particularly those of us who are in leadership, how we exercise our authority. Number three, how we employ our God-given abilities, spiritual gifts. How we use our money, number four. Number five, how we spend our time. Number six, how much we suffer for Jesus. Seven, how we run the particular race which God has chosen for us, fulfilling the purpose that God has given for us. Number eight, how effectively we control the old nature. Number nine, how many souls we witness to and seek to win to Jesus. Number 10, how we react to temptation. Number 11, how much the doctrine of the rapture means to us. It's an interesting one. Doctrine of the second coming, 2 Timothy 4, 8 and 9. And the last one, how faithful we are to the Word of God and the flock of God. According to Wilmington, with those Bible verses listed, that's what this camp will be called to give an account for on that day, on the day of judgment. John 5.24 says that whoever hears me and believes me, this group, has eternal life and they do not come into judgment. So even the Lord Jesus himself is saying exactly the same thing. There will be a day of judgment but it's not the judgment like these guys are going to be receiving. They will appear before God trembling and in torment. We have no reason for that level of fear. We can appear before him in confidence we are coming before our heavenly father but we do have to give an account and he will be pleased or i guess not pleased and jesus as i said is the judge 
Verse 17, one person wrote, God wants you to have a loving confidence toward him that causes you to look forward to that future meeting um, without fear of punishment. God wants you to have a loving confidence toward him that causes you to look forward to when you meet him without fear of punishment. And that's why John goes on into verse 19 and he says, we love him and we love others out of that because he first loved us. He is the one who initiated it. And I wrote about that a couple of weeks ago on the bulletin. Charles Spurgeon says, I want you to get this into your head that God loves me. For you to say that for yourself. God loves us, but he loves us personally, individually. Spurgeon says, it's not just that he bears with me or thinks of me or feeds me or helps me, but that he loves me. He likes me a lot. It's nice to be loved and to feel loved by your spouse, your parent, your child. This is way better, Spurgeon says. Who loves me? God, the maker of heaven and earth, the almighty, the sovereign one. If all of humanity and all the angels gathered before his throne loved me, that would be terrific, be outstanding. But that's nothing compared to the one who is infinite, loving me. And who does he love? Me. Insignificant, ordinary, full of sin. One who loves him so poorly in return. But he loves me. Get it into your heads, Spurgeon says. That we are loved. And because we are loved, when we appear before him, we're not in trouble. There is no punishment, for he himself has borne the punishment. And then John contrasts that, as he often does. But if someone says, I love God, but they have a bad attitude, he says, if they hate brother or sister. And by hate, he means attitude. Just like when he says love, he means an inner attitude towards. And that inner attitude towards is demonstrated in action. So hate is that inner attitude toward which will be demonstrated in action. We're not just talking about the action. We're talking about this inner attitude which is the base of it, the motivation behind it. And he says, if a person says, I love God, but they have this hate, this bad attitude towards... So I expanded that to think, what does he mean by bad attitude? It's when I love God, but I ignore my brothers and sisters. It's I love God, but I talk, I gossip. I, that's maybe not a helpful word. I, I, I talk in a harmful, malicious way about them behind their backs. I undermine them, I backstab, um, I betray them. That bad attitude towards a believer. Where we criticise them. 
now. It's not that we are criticising their behaviour, different issue. It's we criticise them as a person. It's different. If you've got a bad attitude towards a person who professes to be a Christian, a believer in Jesus, and we'll come to that, then John says, I love God, but if you've got this bad attitude, this hate towards your brother or sister, then you're either disobedient or you're deluded. You're a liar. And the only bit you can be lying about is the love for God bit. I love God, liar. You don't love God. How can you say that? Well, because you've got a bad attitude towards God's children. It's an old adage, isn't it? Love me, love my kids. Is that true? Hello. Hurt my child? You'll hurt me. Is that true? Till the age of 18, then they're adults and they're on their own. Not quite, doesn't work like that, does it? So who are these children that John is saying, these children of God, that John is saying that we have to love? He goes on to tell us. He says, this is his command. Whoever loves God must also love their brother or sister. It's very easy to think about. Bit of geometry this morning. There is a triangle and there is a circle. This is how profound I can become. When you think of the triangle, think of God at the top, you at one corner, one apex, and other Christians at the other corner. Now, John is not talking exhaustively about our responsibility to be loving towards all people, to love our enemies, to pray for them. He's not being exhaustive, he's being particular, he's being specific that we are to love God and that we are to love one another. Just like in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says that we are to do good to all people, comma, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are to do good to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Being in the family, you get focused attention, which doesn't give us an excuse to ignore others, doesn't say that, but it is focused attention. And so, therefore, the reverse is the case. You can't have all your attention out there while you ignore your relationship in the family here. Does that make sense? So, he's focusing upon our responsibilities internally. It's not exhaustive, but it is essential. Who are these children of God that we are to love? Oh, sorry, I'm talking about triangles. Um, God at the top, me here, and other Christians there. And that's when he says at the beginning in verse 17, in this way, love is made complete. That's where the circle fits in. Now, God loves me and I love other Christians who love God. And so I love God and how do I know I love God? Because I love other Christians. How do I know I love other Christians? Because I obey God's commands. There is this circular argument that he has, but it's entirely appropriate when you're talking about love and in relationships. Boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, uh, boy loves girl, girl loves boy. How do you know? They just know. Their love reciprocates backwards and forwards. They complete each other. So too in our relationship with God, with other Christians. 
That's exactly what John says in chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You're born again, you're part of this group, part of his family. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And I think when he uses loves his child as well, I don't think he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about us. Love me, love my kids. God says. So that puts, whatever the word is, gets, gets rid of the nonsense that says, can I love God and have nothing to do with the church? No. Can I just follow Jesus and ignore Christians? No. It's exactly what this passage is teaching. If you love God, it's also required of you and it'll be part of you. In fact, it'll be automatic unless you're disobedient, unless something is hindering the work of the Spirit in you because the Spirit of God will place it in you, this love for other, particularly other believers, but also for other people, but particularly for other believers. So who are these children? Well, John tells us, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Four words, four very important words, four essential words. Let's take a minute and just look at each of these just ever so carefully. And if you don't get anything else out of what I'm saying to you this morning, gee, listen to this very carefully. Each word, significant. Jesus. That's his human name. Now listen, Jesus is not eternal. Jesus was created, the body, and born in Bethlehem. The Son of God is eternal. The Son of God became Jesus. Clear? Jesus is his earthly name. Name of a baby born in Bethlehem, lived 33 years. He's human, real human, who ate, who slept, who walked, who talked, who lived in space time history. Jesus, that person, Jesus, is, not was, is. Can't say that of any other religious leader or any other ranked person from ancient history. Julius Caesar was the Emperor of Rome, general, was, not is. Jesus is, currently, he's not dead, he's alive. The is points to his resurrection. We believe in not what he was, a human, when he was here, it's not that, it's who he is that we believe in. This person, Jesus, the man who has been raised, the Christ. Let me talk about the last word first and then come to the, the Jesus the human, the person, man, is ongoingly and now forever, eternally, Christ. A title which points to both his deliverance, he delivers us from sin and from sickness and from death and from fear and from slavery to sin. He is the deliverer. But the title also points to this anointed king who would come, who is divine. You'll know what God is like and meet the Lord Jesus. He's God in flesh, in the person of Jesus. 
Jesus is the Christ. The, not a Christ. There are no others. There is no one his equal. He stands alone. Now, the person who believes that, not just says they believe it, but deep down, genuinely, sincerely, believes that Jesus is the Christ. The eternal Son of God became full human in the person of Jesus, who died on Calvary's cross, who is alive, who is the deliverer from sin. If you understand, believe and accept that, you're born again. You're part of God's family. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves the family as well. Goes together, John says. Came across this quote, time's going. Jesus is the only man who had a heavenly father with no earthly, no heavenly mother. Heavenly father, no heavenly mother. Who had an earthly mother, but no earthly father. Who was older than his mother, but who was as old as his father. Fully God and thus eternal fully man see back in the context of where John is writing there were a group of people we've spoken about this before the Gnostics and there were a group of Gnostics the ascetic Gnostics who said that Jesus um, only appeared to have a body he was a phantom Um, but he was not from God spirit was but he wasn't here in the flesh in other words there was no incarnation John says rubbish Jesus is the Christ Jesus his human name his humanity and then there's another Gnostic group called the Corinthian Serinthian Gnostic Serinthus who believe that Jesus was a person who was born who who knows where just an ordinary bloke who at the age of 33 got baptized and that's when the Spirit of God and the Christ came upon him he became Christ at the age of 33 just a normal ordinary bloke earthly mother earthly father normal human but picked by God And that Christ spirit came upon him and stayed there for three years. And at Calvary's cross, Jesus, the man, the ordinary bloke, died, but the spirit of Christ left him. Which is why Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. And so they didn't believe that the Christ died that God came into humankind. They didn't believe that. And John is writing this deliberately to counter that false understanding. Because if Jesus, the Son of God, did not become human, we have no salvation. If he did not die, we have no atonement. If he didn't rise, we have no justification. If this is not true, we are still in our sins, the Bible teaches. So it's crucial to believe and understand this. And then flowing out of this clear theological understanding of who Jesus is and what God has done through him comes this understanding. This is how we know that we love the children of God. How? By loving God and carrying out his commandments. This is the deal. If you're in the family, you are required and you will automatically want to, the Spirit will place it within you to love God. But the Spirit will also place within you a desire and a want to to love the family. How do I know that I'm loving the family? Because I will have this innate desire to want to do what my father says. And what does my father say? He says, love my my other children. If I'm obedient to him, I'll be loving to them. It's impossible for me to be obedient to him and not be loving to them. So if I'm not being loving towards them, there's something wrong here. Disobedient, 
or deluded, one or the other. John wants us clearly to understand that. And then he goes on to give um, some very clear applications of it. This is love, this is our love for God, obey his commands. Are you obeying God's commands? Any area of your life where you're not obedient? The Bible says to obey God is better than sacrifice. Well, I want to say to you this morning, to obey God is better than preaching about obeying God. To obey God is better than talking about obeying God. To obey God is better than singing about obeying God. To obey God is better than doing a Bible study on it. To obey God is better than saying, I agree, I should obey God. To obey God is essential. How's your obedience? That's how we demonstrate our love for him. Obedience. That's how Rhonda demonstrates her love for me. Obedience. How do I demonstrate my love for her? By giving commands. (laughs) Oh, that doesn't follow, does it? Obedience. Serving submitting to one another love God love Christians and John then says very quickly that his commands are not burdensome when you're walking in a right relationship with God that doesn't mean they're easy to do but it means there is an inner delight there's a desire for you to do them they're not a burden they're a desire I want to do what God wants me to do for everyone who is born of God overcomes the world overcome This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Once you're in the family, you have faith in who Jesus is and the outworking of that process is you have this thing called victory over the influence of the world. Let me finish by saying this. Gypsy Smith once said, a dead fish flows downstream with the current. It takes a living fish to fight against the stream. That's what John's saying. Spiritually dead, you'll go with the world. You can't not go with the influence of the world. But spiritually alive, transformed into God's family over here, you now have the ability to fight against the current, to overcome. You no longer need to give in to peer pressure. You no longer need to follow the world. You can stand against it and obey your heavenly Father because that's the desire that he wants you to do. We have been set free from sin to love him and to love one another have a good attitude towards one another and for that to overflow into action if we say we love God but we have a bad attitude towards other believers particularly warning deluded or deceived or disobedient time is gone we need to pray would you stand with me we'll finish our service I think by me praying if musos want to come we might have some background music During our services this morning, there is a special prayer meeting where the uh, committee who are in searching for the Mandarin pastor are going to be gathering together to pray. Please pray for them and pray with them as we search for a Mandarin-speaking pastor. Immediately after the second service this morning, I rush off to Hertford Street. They've got a members meeting today where they'll be talking about some important issues. Please continue to pray for Hertford Street and for our partnership of will that happen and if so, then what will it look like? 